Welcome to the Cocktail Guru Podcast. A show about food, drink, and entertainment. With a tight focus on the good life. And all things delicious, luxurious, and fun. I'm Jonathan Pogash, bartender, author, TV personality, and founder of The Cocktail Guru. And I'm Jeffrey Pogash, wine and spirits professional, author, insatiable collector of culinary ephemera, and so people tell me, an engaging raconteur. And my dad. The House of Lustau's Solera Standout returns to the U.S. to encourage our friends from the beverage community, stronger and renewed, to join them again. You can submit your recipe from now until December 11th. Enter the Solera Hall of Fame and win a grand cash prize and a full week internship at Lustau in Hedef, Spain. Uh, Dad, John. welcome to our season two premiere. Well, this is very exciting. I can't believe we made it through season one. How was and your hi- How was your hiatus? I think that's what they call it. In, that's what the they call it in the industry. Was fantastic, sunning myself on the beaches of uh, Hawaii and oh wow, why didn't you invite Monaco. me? Well, I will the next time. Don't worry. Okay. But I couldn't be more excited about the second season, but especially about today's interview, because you know how excited I get when we have celebrity guests on the show, especially when they're from the world of television, film, and theater, as is the case with our next guest. Well, there's good reason for my excitement. I have been watching television since I was five years old. You know, the first show I ever watched was Farmer Alfalfa, a black and white cartoon, which aired at five o'clock in the morning. And I just got hooked from that moment on. But let's fast forward a bit to age 14. This is all relevant information I'm giving you today. I'm glad. Is, I'm glad. I was, I, wondering what, go, I was wondering where you were going with this. But I have go. to go into this before we introduce our guest. Let's fast forward to age 14 when my family and I took a trip to California. We visited San Francisco, Yosemite, and Sequoia National Parks. They were fantastic. But the highlight of the trip... The highlight of this trip was Los Angeles, where we were given a private tour of the MGM Studios in Culver City, now known as, I believe, Sony Pictures Studio. It was it was there that I watched the filming of My Favorite Martian. That was one of my all-time favorite shows. And I was able to meet and shake hands with the stars of the show, Ray Walston and Bill Bixby. Bill Bixby went on to star, of course, in The Courtship of Eddie's Father. The Incredible eventually, Hulk. The Incredible Hulk, eventually. That experience was the thrill of a lifetime. But I'm happy to report that the thrill is not gone. Because today, we are very lucky to have an extra special guest on our podcast. A six-time Emmy Award winner, who is also a three-time Golden Globe winner, a Screen Actors Guild Award winner, and winner of two Tony Awards. Um, I am just thrilled. He is probably best known for his role as Dr. Fraser Crane in the hit television series, Cheers, and then in the hit television series, of course, Fraser. And I'm referring to the star of stage, screen, and television, Mr. Kelsey Grammer. And now we have another title to add 
to his curriculum vitae, and that is Brewmaster, because he owns a brewery called Faith American. So welcome, Kelsey Grammer. Thank you, guys. Love to see thank you. you. Wow, this is this is outstanding, and uh, thank you for that uh, soliloquy, Dad. Uh, it was it was amazing, but I, I love hearing about your uh, your childhood. Um, I mean, having Kelsey Grammer on the Cocktail Guru podcast is a huge honor. And uh, Kelsey, all of our guests, we always ask them one question before we get into the um, the nitty gritty, the the meat okay. and potatoes of each episode. Um, Mr. Kelsey Grammer, what is your desert island drink? So if you're stranded on a desert island, what would you want to have in your hand? Oh, honestly, probably coconut water. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. That's great. It seems to make the most sense. It might be actually something I could find there. So, <laughs> Well, it's one of my favorites, too. Oh, yeah, as deeply practical as I can about that. Yeah, very good. I, I love that. Right. So you would, climb up, you would climb up the tree, you would grab the coconut. Yes, indeed, Presum- I would. Yes. Presumably, <laughs> yeah. you, you might have, well, no tools on there, so you would just slam it on the, on the ground and you would open I'll it. Find rocks, I'll find some, you know, oh, rocks, yeah. probably chip off some whatever tool I can fashion out of the rudimentary basics. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, um, we're, we're sampling your beer, uh, Kelsey, Faith American, and it is delicious. This is the Faith Blue. It's, it's really, really good. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. It, it was rich. It was smooth. It was eminently drinkable. It was a delicious IPA. Thank you. Delicious. So please tell us something about the brewery and how you, how it got started. Our third flavor in the batch um, uh, of the bunch, rather. We um, about thirty years ago, I bought a property in upstate New York, and uh, it was near Kingston, New York, where I used to go to spend Thanksgivings with my grandfather and his best pal, uh, Bill Carvel, and uh, he lived on a little place that was called Copperhead Mountain Farm, and. Uh, that was a, it was a very cool place for me to go when I was a boy. And uh, I was raised by my granddad, Gordon. So uh, it held and continues to hold a very dear place in my heart. And uh, as soon as I had enough money to actually buy something, like a, a piece of land, I looked to the Catskills because that's sort of what I was familiar with. And I found this little property outside of, uh, it's, 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 it's about 40 minutes past Woodstock and, and, and maybe 45 minutes from Kingston. And uh, I, I fell in love with it. I actually chartered a helicopter. I was staying in the Hamptons. And uh, I, I pretty much bought it the minute I saw it. And uh, ever since then, I've been, you know, spending summers there with my family. And uh, the, about 12 years ago, I took my wife, Kate, there. She was not my wife at the time. And I guess it was a, it was a sort of a test, I suppose. I, I said, uh, come on up and spend some time with me in my favorite place in the world. <laughs> and, uh, she came down the mountain with a couple of her buddies and she said, thank you for this place. And that was all I needed to hear. And she's been uh, a key element of the reason I enjoy it uh, today. But about eight years ago, a, a contiguous piece of land that I'd always sort of fancied and prized uh, came up for sale and I bought it. And on that piece of land is an old barn, uh, uh, it was a dairy farm years ago. It was also one of the largest cauliflower farms on the East Coast in the 70s. Half the people that still live in Margaretville, which is where we're located, 
will say, oh, yeah, I used to pack uh, cauliflower into punnets up there when I was a kid back in high school. So there's some uh, some real history there with, with the community. But this barn, I thought, what am I? I'm not going to be a, a dairy farmer. I'm just, you know, not going to do cows twice a day. Devote my entire life to being there because I actually am still an actor. So I started to think about beer and uh, the possibilities of brewing there. The water in... Uh, the water in upstate New York is, is uh, sorry for that. Something just came through. Um, some, the water up there is fantastic. Bubbles out of the ground. You can just drink it. It's the cleanest water in the world. It all goes down to New York City. This is the issue that came up after that. Anyway, I, I decided I was going to try to brew beer there. Yeah. What, what happened was I ended up putting a company together that was going to be a, a brewing company, and we were going to brew out of the other Catskills. And then we found out that because it's the watershed, I couldn't use the water. Now, there is a law in the books in New York that you can use the water if it's on your land. However, that was, uh, what's the word, uh, ended basically by what they call the Watershed Act of 1996, which I was aware of at the time. However, um, so I had to kind of uh, improvise and come up with some other ideas. Yeah. And so I contract brew now with a couple of companies outside of Albany. Um, the sort of the titular head of the of the of the company, of, of the brewery itself, the legacy of it is centered around the land there that I own. And uh, the actual functional brewing is, is, is done off-premise at this point. We have a little tavern up there. People are welcome to visit, but uh, we're, we're not open very much. It's a, sort of a seasonal thing, and we don't yeah. have a lot of people there yet. So this is what we're doing. We're selling in Atlantic City. We're selling in um, Buffalo, New York. So from Buffalo to Cape May, basically, the beer is available. Uh, have we got full distribution yet? No, but we are actually working on it. And uh, we have some very promising relationships starting out with some of the distributors we're working with. We introduced our first flavor about a year, two, well, about two and a half years ago, uh, just before uh, February of uh, 19, of, of 2020. And um, Wow, the timing, huh? <laughs> so uh, it was February of 2020, and... Uh, Five days later, they announced that, uh, well, actually, no, when I was there, they announced, this is in Las Vegas, they announced that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the March Madness was not going to be held there anymore yeah. in Vegas. So that sent the beer business as I planned it in my head. I thought, well, let's open up in Las Vegas. We'll have people come from all over the world and say, gosh, we love this beer. Let's get it where we live. And then someone would come to me and say, we need your beer everywhere. Yeah. Well, that didn't quite happen. <laughs> so I thought, I'm not going to freak out about it because we haven't opened up yet, really. We we're not like even on the market. So I pulled back. I retooled a little bit. And I thought, well, let's introduce two new flavors. So I came with a more of a traditional IPA, a little more West Coast IPA, uh, amber colored and, and has a nice little sort of a bite and a little um, dry hopping at the end, which gives it some, some uh, that more traditional sort of uh, IPA value, and then the next flavor, which was just hatched late January this year, is the the New England Blue Hazy, and uh, so that's been really popular. Very good summer, yeah. but they love, they love that hazy in the East Coast, so that's oh, yeah. really they've been flying off the shelf. They do. The first, the first flavor is the ale, is is the, the Faith American Ale, and that happens to be my favorite because that's kind of beer I like. I think it was the blue hazy that we were tasting. Yeah. Yes. It's a good beer. <laughs> Kelsey, where did, where did the interest, where did the interest in um, beer and brewing beer come from? Oh, well, actually it's all because of the land. It's the land. Hmm. That, that, that barn. Just the that, land, yeah. That place is just so, you know, 
What, what can we do that reflects our love of this place and uh, a desire to return the land to prosperity and hopefully involve the community in something they can look to and be proud of as well? And, uh, you know, we, we haven't, you know, finished our, our dream. We haven't fulfilled our goals yet, but um, there is, that has actually started to happen. And so all the beers are rather than being, you know, the, the kitschy kind of uh, um phrase and craft brewing now is, you know, it's, it's sort of funny insider kind of stuff, you know, goose your buddy or, you know, screw your pal or, you know, whatever, you know, fat this, fat that, mm-hmm. uh, beer. And I just thought I'd rather, I'd rather kind of try to reflect our love of land and our, our love of history and our love of America. And my daughter's name happens to be Faith. So, it's several things kind of came together at the same time, but there's no uh, mistake that it's, it's called faith American. I mean, I, I love America. I love everything we're capable of doing. I love the fact that we're, you know, always sort of in process and figuring out what the hell we are from, from generation to generation. But uh, I, I believe in this country and I believe in good beer. So it, it sort of, it just became a good marriage. I was not a beer maker in my head. I'm still not really a brewer. i I, I give notes to guys who are great brewers, and I say, I'd like to try this. Is that something we can do? And then they'll look at me and think, yeah, yeah, we can try that. Uh, or they'll say, oh, you know, we did something like that a while ago. But a lot of guys like to do that. Oh, yeah, did something just like that back when, uh, you know, <laughs> back before the Pewter Wars. But, uh, <laughs> so uh, this is not an original idea. Okay, fine. I understand. And then they... Uh, They'll, they'll come up with something, and then we talk about it, and how do I want it to taste, what's, what's the profile I'm looking for, and uh, then we'll try a brew. Now, some of the guys don't want to actually brew something without me paying for it, so I've spent a lot of money just trying some stuff and throwing away quite a bit of stuff. Yeah. Sure. But uh, to me, it's worth it. I don't want it to be – I don't want anybody to have a, a, a taste of beer that isn't beer they really like. And so I like the beer I'm selling. Uh, it's certainly possible that somebody won't think it's the greatest beer in the world, but – there are moments when I'll have a sip of the ale or of, of any one of them, depending upon what food I'm eating with them. And I'll think that's the best beer I ever had. So I'm very happy. <laughs> as, a, as a great beer lover, I can say these are tremendous beers. They're absolutely delicious. There are three in the line right now, correct? Yeah. Faith yeah. American Ale, Faith American Blue Hazy, and Calico Man. Yeah, Calico, Man. Calico Man is, is based upon... Uh, this is part of the idea about the history. Uh, the hillside to me looks like Calico during the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not supposed to be a seasonal beer. And so I'm a little confused. I may actually kind of rebrand it a little bit, maybe change the picture on the can to bitch a bit to, you know, have it, have it, have less of a seasonal flair about the design. But when I saw the hillside one day in full color, like October, October 7th, it's always around October 7th where I am because it gets cold faster there. Uh, it was, it reminded me of a calico cat. The calico man, uh, inspiration is from a, a group of people called the calico Indians who in 1845 staged a rebellion in, uh, Delaware County in upstate New York, uh, because of the rent they were forced to pay, uh, for land that they've been farming for a long time. And then what happened was the families that owned that land hadn't paid their taxes. So 30 years in arrears, suddenly got passed on to the people who were farming the land. And uh, because they couldn't pay it, they took all their stuff. And the sheriffs were sent in to seize all their property and sell it at auction. 
So to stop this, to rebel against it, the Calico Indians, or Calico Man as I like to call them, uh, wore outfits of calico, which was a newly imported material from India that their wives were wearing for aprons and using around the house. And uh, they dressed themselves up looking like what they thought was their best rendition of sort of primitive savages. And there's some pretty scary looking pictures. And they went around raids and burned down a couple of barns and, and uh, tormented the constabulary a bit. And then uh, finally one guy was shot. And his name was uh, Osmond Steele. And uh, he's very famous for having said at the tavern, the drinking tavern in Andes, New York, the night before his death, that lead would never pierce steel. Sure enough, they shot him the next day. <laughs> oh my goodness. 21 guys were sentenced to, to prison. Uh, they were sent all over a federal crime. They, they were sent to several different federal uh, prisons around the country. And one of them was sent to a place in Illinois. And uh, it happened to be just nearby a town called Springfield. And it turned out that he uh, secured um, some, uh, what's the word, some services from a young lawyer named Abraham Lincoln. Oh, wow. And, and Abraham Lincoln and this man ended up being partners, basically, and starting the Republican Party. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's got a lot of history. That's a wow. great story. That's a and great, great story. Who was the good patroon? I remember yeah, hearing about the that. Patroon was was the, the the guy that owned the land. Who's when he finally died, he never asked them for any rent. He never asked the farmers for any rent. He thought, you know, come on, I, I got so much land here, I don't even go there. Uh, let them use it. It was his children when he died that were told they owed a ton of money by the government, <laughs> the U.S. government, who had decided it was probably wisdom to go ahead and let the people that owned the land before the revolution keep the land. So that's what happened. Thousands of acres of, of land that had been deeded or given as royal gifts from the King of England, from the, the King of Denmark, from Holland. The, the Dutch were very, very influential there. That's why the name Patroon. Sure. They were just, they were allowed to keep their land as long as they would actually pay a little tax. <laughs> so that didn't happen. And uh, they had caused some trouble. But uh, about the two years later, they were, uh, all the guys that had been sent to jail were actually, their sentences were uh, uh, lifted and uh, commuted, and uh, they uh, were allowed to go back to their homes and start to do some farming. I have to I have to say that um, Kelsey, you are quite a storyteller, um, and and I can only imagine you know what it would be like sitting around a campfire and enjoying your beer and hearing hearing stories told by you because it is absolutely amazing to hear. Thank you. Thanks. Well, someday maybe we can just do that because it's a great property. We've got about five hundred acres up there, and it's uh, it's you know it's not a giant piece of land, but it's a it's 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 enough for us, and it's a lovely place, and it inspires a lot of ideas from. While we're here with you, Kelsey, can we mention the Fraser reboot? Sure, sure. We're uh, we're just we were just we're dealing with some notes this uh, just yesterday from the the studio and uh, from the network, which is Paramount Plus. Sort of my home, actually. I worked on Paramount a lot for thirty five years, I guess, yes. off and on. And uh, it's uh, it's looking pretty good. We have some we have some hurdles to go through because we actually have you know we ended up in a situation where some of the legacy cast didn't want to return. So we said, okay, 
great, got it, understood. So in a weird way, it's as though they've offered us a world that's a complete, a completely new Frasier, a completely third act, which we're I'm very excited about. Uh, so we've got some some fun ideas I can't share with you at this moment, but uh, I think uh, they'll be we'll be seeing something on TV pretty soon. So the trailer that I saw is an accurate or somewhat accurate depiction of what we should look forward to. <laughs> Dear God, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, it's a it's, is it just an attention grabber? So, I don't know. A film student's like fun idea of what what it might, what might it be like, or I have no idea who's responsible for it. It's it's okay. it's crap. <laughs> it's like you have to kind of respect them for pouring through it to that extent and coming up with an idea that uh, they, they found enough uh, footage to reflect what they thought they wanted to see um, it's pretty much all of my performance from um, from Boss, the show I did after Frasier, my friend, I mean I did, I did another sitcom for a while, I did a, a sitcom called Hank and I did a sitcom called Back to You with Patty Heaton the one yeah. Patty Heaton is a pretty good show uh, but the writers went on strike. Um, we were like three shows into it. We thought, what are you doing, guys? And uh, they said, oh, it's the best thing we've ever done. I, I have no idea if it ever ended up making any money for them. But we lost that show as a result. And the show Hank beforehand, uh, it just wasn't funny. You know, I mean, it just wasn't funny. I mean, you know, I, I, I tried. To- did you know that? That's an interesting point. Did you Did you know while you were, you know, I know a lot of actors while they're doing it, they, they might think to themselves, I'm not really sure if this is going to work. Or was it, you know, afterwards when you were watching or when you saw reactions to it that you were like, eh, it's not that funny? Well, you go ahead with your best, uh, with the, the most hopeful frame of mind you can. And uh, in, in that case, um, when we were pitching the show, was a, this, a, a young writer who was, uh, he had, you know, some, some pretty good pedigree. Um, the ideas he was pitching, I thought to myself, well, I, there's an idea that I think that can work. We were a little wrapped up in the phenomenon of the 2008 crash about how suddenly everybody who'd been sort of successful didn't have a career anymore and they had to kind of, oh, freak out and find a way to get through things. And, uh, I'm not so sure that was a big slice of American interest at the time. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think everybody was kind of suffering equally and uh, trying to care about the fact that somebody who used to be rich wasn't rich anymore was something they wanted to watch. I don't know. Yeah. It, it just needed to be funnier, honestly. The guy was doing his best to uh, keep his family together. That seemed like a good idea for a, for a, a, a sitcom. But um, the writing was uh, stylistically a little more like Everybody Loves Raymond. Well, uh, Raymond does that well. That wasn't my... <laughs> my place should take my bowl of wax, I guess, or whatever. I don't know. Um, it wasn't my thing. And right. it didn't quite, it didn't it didn't quite resonate. And when we were doing it, I mean, I remember I called the president of uh, Warner Bros. at the time. Lovely guy, fantastic conversation. And I just said, "Look, we just finished the show the night before. I think it was the eleventh show that we shot." And I said, "When can we put a bullet in this thing?" Hmm. And he said, "Oh gosh, we got orders from overseas. Blah 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 blah. We have to at least fulfill the third first thirteen and." A day later, a phone call came from the president of ABC saying, no, let's not go any further with this. Wow. <laughs> I said, oh, hallelujah. And the You're next, ahead. honestly, an hour later, I got a phone call from a producer on Broadway, Barry Weisler, and he said, 
are you free to fly, fly over to England and see a show we've been producing over there that we want to bring over called La Caja Fold? And I said, uh, as a matter of fact, I am. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that changed my life. That's, changed, that's amazing. That's anyway. I am so happy you mentioned that because I was looking for a way to get into a discussion about that. If you have the time to do that, in, in 1983, I went to the Palace Theater and I saw a show called La Cage aux Folles with George Hearn and Gene Barry. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely fantastic. And then yeah. I was thrilled when I saw the revival with oh. you as the lead, you and the Douglas Hodge as the lead. And I've been pouring over tapes of the revival of La Cage aux Folles, and it is absolutely fantastic. And I don't know how many people out there realize you have a beautiful singing voice. Oh, thank you. Uh, I know you studied at Juilliard. People know more, more kind of uh, understand, oh, yes, he does sing as well, but it's actually how I started. I, I started in a, just in choir when I was 14 years old, but a, a guy who came in and said, I want every guy, every boy in this class to come in and sing for me. I'm going to put you in a choir. And we were like, oh, yeah, right. And then <laughs> uh, half of us showed up and tried. And uh, several of us got on this little uh, music program with uh, with this man, Richard Mitten was his name. And uh, it started me toward a, a, a career in, in performing. Yes. Uh, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really keen on doing anything other than surfing at the time, but uh, the singing opened up a door for me. And uh, I didn't think I'd be an opera singer, which is where my, my voice coach at the time thought I could go. And uh, so we, we departed on that. And I thought, I think this acting thing might be better. Well, you know. <laughs> what was, um, Kelsey, what was the role uh, that you got early on where you were like, okay, wow, I have this role. This is amazing. I think, I think I'm going to be okay. <laughs> okay. That role was uh, cigar smoking uh, Southern gentleman called Ben Hubbard in a show called the little foxes by mm -hmm. Lillian Hellman. Yeah. I was 16 years old when I played it. He's supposed to be, I think 52. Uh, <laughs> but I did a hell of a job. And uh, honestly, it was, it was a quite an extraordinary experience. I mean, it went really well. And it was a, I, I discovered that this was, this was something I, I think was a passion I didn't know I had. I mean, I loved Shakespeare at the time. I did read all the time. Uh, so I, I guess I was qualified without knowing I was. But my love of language and then this ability to just kind of loan myself to the emotion or to the fantasy of a writer and, and fill it was um, the sort of the ticket, my ticket out, I guess you could say. And you were in another... Uh, revival that I love. Um, uh, in 1965, I went to another Broadway show with my parents at the Anta Washington Square Theater, and it was called Man of La Mancha oh, yeah. with Richard Kiley and Joan Diener. And I know that you were in a revival in London yeah. of Man of La Mancha. You played yeah, well, Don Quixote. Always, always wanted to play it. I absolutely loved it. Richard Kiley was a buddy of mine. Uh, oh, really? Right. I'd seen different things, you know, during, during, um, you know, Hollywood days that were, you know, like sort of oh, Oscar night at some party or, or Emmys, you know, I'd seen there or there was some, some charity thing. Uh, he was just such a terrific guy and, and so lovely. And, uh, I, I remember hearing his performance of that on the radio a lot. I think Jack Jones sang it as well, uh, in a pretty popular, uh, rendition. Uh, a lot of guys have sung it, but, uh, the, 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 the dream, the impossible dream, uh, Oh. 
is the most beautiful songs ever written. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. No yes. It. And, it, it, and it is one of the most beautiful ideas ever conceived. It is how I've always wanted to live my life. So mm-hmm. to get a chance to sing it mm-hmm. and to play it was a presumptive joy. And it was, it was, it got a very strange reaction. We opened up at the, at the sort of the, the crest of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And so there's a rape scene in it. Well, it, it was really, right. you know, um, I'm forgetting his name right now. <laughs> um, Cervantes, mm-hmm. uh, in the classic novel, which is considered, which is one of the greatest novels in the world. I think it may be still the most read novel in the world. Uh, and uh, Don Quixote, and of La Mancha, and uh, they objected so much to the idea that there was a rape portrayed on stage. Yeah, I, I was actually quite blown away by it because I thought, well. It's a story that's 400 years old. What, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. What's happening here? And uh, there, this objection I learned was sort of historical as well, because 50 years previous, which was the last time Madeline Mancha opened in London, they wrote the same thing. Hmm. Found it offensive that the girl was raped. Hmm. It, it is uh, offensive. It's but yes, it is. And that's the point. Yeah. So that's the whole idea. That's the point. And, yeah. and, and she finds her way forward through the faith of this man who believes in a code that in her yes. world does not exist. It gives her a new identity. It gives her hope. Exactly. It's a fantastic story. He saves her life. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, anyway. so my, my, my father and I both kind of started as actors, <laughs> I, I moved to New York city to become an actor after college. Yeah. And then I got into the bar industry that way. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge geek about film, TV, theater. Uh, oh. and, and one of my idols is the great James Burroughs. So, oh, yeah. um, can, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to meet him and then kind of the experience working for an amazing Hollywood showrunner like James Burroughs. Sure. The, the, I actually knew who his dad was, right? Because I used to watch uh, What's My Line when I was a kid, and he was on one of the panels, you know, so, uh, you know, it was uh, Abe Burroughs, you know. Yeah. Was, oh, so, sure. I, sure. So, uh, when I heard the name Jimmy Burroughs, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what his story is. And somebody said, oh, you know, Jimmy Burroughs, famous director, blah, blah, blah. He's uh, Abe Burroughs' kid. And I thought, oh, oh, that's the connection. But I met Jimmy um, at my audition for Frasier. For, for Cheers and Cheers. Uh, the role on Frey on Cheers. And uh, he was a lovely guy, you know, um, straight out of, you know, whatever I thought the 80s Hollywood would look like. And uh, he was very pleasant. He said, let's go meet Ted and Shelley. And uh, so we sat down with them and I read a couple of scenes with them. And they said, okay, let's go across the street. He seemed very happy about all that, and we went across the street, and there were, there was a, a like a, a boardroom. It seemed like a long, long table, which ended up being the place where they did readings every week, beginning of each week. But uh, I sat down and said hello to everybody, and then I pulled out my little sheets. I didn't have them memorized because I'd, I'd been told years ago you don't have to memorize anything. They're not looking for you to be the perfect person. They want to see one moment of truth. So I thought, boys, yeah. relied on that. Because then they, then they know that, oh, they can trust this actor to give them truth. And uh, so we read the scenes with Ted and Shelley, and I, I read through, there were, I think, two basic scenes. And there wasn't a single laugh in the room. There were about 15 people in the room. I thought, well, you know, <laughs> what laughter was funny. 
Mm. Uh, so I guess they didn't think it was funny. So I stood up and I put those sheets down. And I said, you know what? Thank you very much. I'm going to go out there on the street and see if I get some laughs out there. And so I turned around <laughs> and I walked down and went down the stairs. Uh, I called my old friend Lois at that point. I said, Lois, what are you doing? Let's go down to San Diego because I had spent some time in San Diego acting. That was my first job at the Old Globe Theater. And Lois said, well, nothing, let's go. So we drove down. We stayed at this old place near Balboa Park and uh, had a couple of giggles and saw Craig Noel, who used to run the theater and stuff like that. And I just said, well, I'm going back to New York. I drove home. I mean, I drove back to L.A. to turn in my rental car and uh, spend my last night in the, the hotel room, which was the Hollywood the Hollywood um, Holiday Inn on Hilton and Vine. I mean, on Highland and Vine, which is now the big Kodak theater. It's, it's oh, yeah, converted. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but um, I got to the desk and the, and the guy behind the counter said to me, he said, um, Mr. Grammer, oh, hello. There's a whole bunch of messages for you. Uh, um, you want to take them here? They're just sitting up in your room, too. I said, oh, fine, fine. I'm just going to go up there and grab them. So I went up to grab my little bag. And when I walked in, there was a bottle of Dom Perignon sitting on the table. Wow. <laughs> I hey, opened hey, it up hey. and it said, welcome to Cheers. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my. That gave, that gave me chills. <laughs> yeah, me cool. too. Yeah, it was pretty great. And, wow. that, and that changed your life. Jimmy, to get back to the first point of it, Jimmy ended up being a, you know, a monumental part of my life. I mean, and, and you know, by, by default, that became a big part of his life, too. We did some great stuff together. And, he, you know, of course, he is the premier director of sitcom in, in history. There, there is no question about it. There's nobody even a close second. Uh, except for me, but <laughs> 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 we, uh, we had a, a great time together and we did some stuff that I'm very proud of and uh, can point to uh, looking back and say that that was funny and uh, our relationship is real and good. And, uh, you know, you know, if it's not seen eye to eye on some things, but we, we always love the fight. You know, we love the, we love the fact that we're hatching something creative together. Yeah, and I just have so so much love for him. It's just straight out love. There you go. Well, my favorite shows as an adult, the favorite sitcoms were Cheers, Wing. Uh, sorry, starting in order, Taxi, then Cheers, yeah. then Wings, then Frasier. You got Jimmy Burrow. All James Burrow's yeah. shows. There you go. Yeah. And and so I mean, two shows, Cheers and Frasier, both ran eleven years. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is an incredible repertoire, and you are really like you are the king of TV. Uh, and you know, I, I've I've heard a lot of actors talk about you know actors who've worked in film, TV, and theater, which you've done all of, and oh, and also um, you know behind the microphone, you've done uh, voice work, and yeah. we cannot forget Sideshow Bob. Uh, from the from the Simpsons because that is right. you know my my generation you know that yeah. is just the ultimate. Um, but how well well how did how did um how did the the Simpsons uh, come about for you? The Simpsons thing was uh, Sam Simon, who was you know one of the original producers of the Simpsons, was a writer on staff at Cheers, and Sam and I were pals. I liked him, and you know we we enjoyed uh you know just shooting the blank around and. Uh, he, uh, I would come on set every day and, and I'd always sing, Oh, the good life. This was my, what my walk into work song? 
And uh, it had been for years, even before I started doing um, film work or television work. And Sam called one day and said, you know, I've been doing this thing, Kels. Uh, it's a new show, The Simpsons, you know, and we're, we've got this character. Um, there's been a side show, a sidekick of, of uh, Krusty the Clown for a while. He's never spoken. We'd like him to be very erudite, and he has to sing a Cole Porter song. And uh, I figured, you know, you're the guy, you you sing, right? And you're still singing, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I'm still singing. What the hell? And uh, I said, yeah, I'd be glad to do it. So I, I was arranged to go in one morning after a trip to Chicago where I was I was sort of a, a mascot for uh, the, the all-star uh, hockey team. So it was meant to be sort of like a, a, a coach in name only. And I actually hit the ice while I was there. I'd had a couple of drinks and uh, I'd cut my head open. So I got to, uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing, but uh, I was fine. Uh, they handled it, at Cheers, they handled it by writing in a line uh, suffice it to say that Lamar's class is not the place to flirt. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> that was great. with an iron can when they got home. But so I got to I got to the recording session for uh, Sideshow Bob, and I'd already decided I was going to do an impression of Ellis Rapp, who was a famous American theater figure. And uh, they said, uh, "Kelsey, okay, you're all right. What, what's happened? Are you up to this?" I said, "I'm up to it. It's fine. This is how I live." And uh, so it, it, he came to life that day. I said, "Oh, but as is, you know, then it's just he, he just caught on." I had a friend who was teaching at the time in Evanston, Illinois, who sent me a picture from the day after the show aired for the first time. And it was a giant graffiti mural on the side of one of the dorms of Sideshow Bob, his funny head or hairline, and a, a, a banner across it that read, Free Sideshow Bob. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome. It caught on right away. It was a very funny thing. <laughs> um, and one thing also that I'm curious about before we let you go, because we want to be respectful of your time. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I've heard a lot of interviews with like Seinfeld and, and, you know, uh, Jennifer Aniston and, you know, all these people who are on longstanding sitcoms and who've also done theater and, and film. Um, what is, what, what is it? The, which kind, which schedule do you prefer? You know, I mean, I know that there's sort of a completely different schedule with theater when you're doing a film and when you're doing a sitcom. And a lot of sitcom stars are like, man, I'd love to do another sitcom because those those schedules are like cushy and, and you know, all of that. It's schedule in the world. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's like going to high school for a living. You know, you work <laughs> once a year and you take three months off. Maybe go do a movie if you want to, but you don't have to. And, uh, the, the daytime schedule is wonderful, I mean, especially if you've got a good, well-oiled group, you know, and, and uh, Jimmy always directed the group he got, you know, with, with Cheers, there was a lot of mayhem, a lot of craziness, and, you know, one was out too late this night, one went out, the other was out too late that night, and, you know, and someone, one wouldn't come in because his iridologist said his eyeball looked bad, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on all the time, so he just, he just sort of just hang on for dear life and let everybody come on with... Uh, Cheers, we would finish a uh, shoot night, usually around 1, 2, sometimes even 3 a.m. Uh, with Frasier, it was such a theatrical launch anyway. 
and uh, they'd come to work. We would start shooting at around seven o'clock, and about nine thirty, we'd be done. And so it was like a whole life. Uh, we 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 sort of broke in a new director, Pam Fryman, at the time. Oh, about three or four years into the show, we were running the show, and uh, we did the camera blocking day, which was the busiest day. That's the hardest day. We were done around three in the afternoon. We started at ten, and she said, "Well, that's it. We're not." doing anything else. I said, Pam, do you have children? She said, yeah. <laughs> do you like your home life? Yeah. I said, well, go enjoy it. <laughs> so, okay, we're going home. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a shock to her system, but she understood it from that point on that we were, we were meant to be there for as uh, short amount of time as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking of children, I just want to tell one short story about my grandson, whose name is Ethan. I have two other children. Jonathan's children live in Massachusetts. Ethan lives here near me in New Jersey. And I told him that we were going to have Kelsey Grammer for an interview on the podcast. And he said, who? I said, well, Kelsey Grammer. And I showed him some of the things that you have done. One thing caught his eye. He said, what? He was in Toy Story 2? Really? You were Stinky Pete in Toy Story 2. That got his attention. You you have won him over forever because of that. Now he has researched you and he knows everything there is to know about Kelsey Grammer. He's nine years old. The good thing about my career is that uh, generation after generation is introduced to it. Yes. Step by step, piece by piece. I have had nine-year-olds walk up to me and say I'm their favorite actor, and I think to myself, yeah. "How is that possible?" I say, "I've watched, watched every Frasier." I think, "Yeah, you are you are the most delightful child." Nine-year-old <laughs> <laughs> kid that walked up and said, "I've watched every Frasier," and it happens a lot. Uh, it's kind of wonderful. And the other response happens too. Who who is the first thing, and then they start to go, "Oh, oh, oh." He's spent his whole lifetime trying to entertain me at different ages and different generations. Yeah. So it's, it's been a very gratifying uh, life that way. And to segue back to the beer, I, I certainly hope that the beer enjoys the same kind of popularity in time. It's uh, starting out. Absolutely. Uh, and we've, we've had a lot of great response in Atlantic City. We've had some good response from the guys at uh, what used to be the Dennis Hotel, which is now Valley. Yes. Ballad. Right, and I, you have you have I, a little connection. You've got a little connection to the to the hotel. I used yeah, to go to the Dennis Hotel when I was a kid. Yes, when I was six, seven, and eight years old. My granddad was organizing. Uh, my granddad ran Chevron for a while out of, for example, in New Jersey, and uh, he was. They always had their convention down there at the Dennis because he loved it, and uh, so I and I loved it too. <laughs> so now it's fun to kind of walk in and then remember some of what happened there when I was a boy. I'm excited the beer's there, and I'm, I'm hoping to get uh, Jerry to put on all three flavors because he actually needs to. You really can't enjoy it unless you enjoy all three, and uh, and to add whatever when we bring it when we bring it in. Uh, we uh, my ultimate goal is to make Faith American sort of Atlantic City's beer of choice, and uh, and to maybe have that move across the country. Who knows? But for now, we enjoy the art of making beer. The 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 great enjoyment I also get from seeing people drink the beer and like it. You know, and it's, it's been really, it's been really popular. Some places in New Jersey, it's really, really popular. So New York and New Jersey is where we're basically uh, available now. And we're going to go step by step, state by state, and roll it out slowly so we don't end up, uh, you know, behind the eight ball. 
Yeah. Well, well, we know Faith American will be a great success. Thank you. Everywhere. Yes. You. And, and Kelsey Grammer, you're an amazing entertainer and storyteller, and you never stop working, it seems. Um, and, you know, we, my father and I can connect to that because we also just love working and love hustling. And, you know, when you do what you love, it obviously doesn't feel like work. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I've never, I've never worked a day in my life. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's where we're at. Uh, it's wonderful. I hope to pass that on to my kids. Well, thank you so very much. And cheers to you, Kelsey Grammer. Cheers, Kelsey. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Tipple Time is sponsored in part by Ferrand Dry Curacao and Perfect Puree Mango Passion. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the very first Tipple Time. Uh, I'm so excited. It's Jonathan here, of course. It's me. Um, I'm going to make for you uh, this wonderful cocktail that I created all by myself, all by myself, ladies and gentlemen. It's called the Fall Shandy. It's a variation on the classic Shandy, which is, of course, sort of a beer lemonade type of situation. Uh, but this is easy enough to make at home. And also for all of you folks working in bars and restaurants, this is great because it utilizes a couple of nice bar type products, uh, which I love. So first of all, we'll start with our nice Pilsner glass over here. And I'm actually going to add my ice. And I'm just using, you know, regular ice machine ice. But if you've got your fancy ice, please go ahead and be fancy because cocktail making is fancy. And I like some good cocktail ice, but this is just from my refrigerator, which, which is, of course, fine, obviously, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, we're going to start off with this perfect puree of Napa Valley, their mango passion fruit. Perfect puree is amazing because they're great for industry professionals, from, you know, Guys, there's definitely a labor shortage these days, and you may be short of time with your prep. So using a puree like this that's already made, ready, available, comes frozen, you thaw it out, it's just a great addition to your cocktail making skills. Um, they also have this cool trade program where they can get you samples, so we'll throw the link on how to get that uh, right at the bottom. But here we go. In the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and add one and a half ounces of my Perfect Puree of Napa Valley Mango Passion. Ah, this is one of my favorite products. And you know, my dad loves this too. This is uh, Pierre Ferrand Dry Curacao. So it is, it is an orange flavored liqueur. It is so nice, crisp, refreshing, great in really any all year round seasonal cocktails. We're going to throw an ounce of that into this nice footed Pilsner glass is what I would call it. If you're watching at home, if you're just listening, then I'm describing as best as I possibly can. I'm opening up a beer right now, and this is uh, just a lager, but you can also use an ale, and we're just going to top it off, literally topping off our drink just like that. Maybe you can hear the ice jiggling. I definitely can, and I have my bar spoon right over here. I'll give it a little bit of a stir. Ooh, I can smell that mango, the passion. Actually, you can smell both ingredients um, very nicely, and the beer and the uh, Pierre Ferrand dry curacao. So uh, I'm, I'm getting, of course, fancy as I do with my cocktails. You can have a fresh herb as a garnish, but I decided to grab the last of my nasturtiums uh, from my garden, from my home garden. So this is a nasturtium flower. It is edible. This is a nasturtium leaf. Oh, it's so beautiful. A couple of nasturtium flowers. How about that? And that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is my fall shandy. So cheers to you all. Take care. Triple Time is sponsored in part by Ferrand Dry Curacao and Perfect Puree Mango Passion. And 
here is today's top off. Uh, while building your cocktail in a cocktail shaker, add the liquid ingredients first and then the ice before you shake your drink or before you stir your drink. This ensures uh, that your drink is not over diluted and will result in a more balanced cocktail. That does it for today's show. If you enjoy what we do, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also support the show with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. Just click on the donate button at the top of our website and choose your donation amount. To learn more about future guests, visit www.thecocktailgurupodcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. Cocktail Guru Podcast is produced by First Real Entertainment and distributed by Eats Drinks TV, a service of the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.